We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, as always, is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. And by phone all the way in the U.S. of A., uh, we've got frequent contributor Che Ting Ye of Ketagalan Media. Uh, Ting, good to have you back. Good evening as well. Uh, and uh, now I'm going to introduce a first-time contributor, Paris Huang. He is an international broadcaster for Voice of America, uh, doing a lot of reporting from Washington, D.C. Paris, good to have you on the show. Hello, everyone. Today on the program, uh, well, it's been a busy week for the newly arrived Thai government. President Tsai Ing-wen herself is promising reform, and we already got some good hints of how sweeping that could be. Uh, So we'll be focusing on the big issues today, those being uh, an apparent softening in the standoff with Japan over the Akhenatory Atoll, uh, amnesty for the Sunflower Movement's executive UN occupiers, and some changes to the labor laws uh, that all you working stiffs out there will be pretty happy to hear about, I imagine. That's all coming up in the second half. First, though, we're going to start things off uh, on the international front. Uh, You know, last week we discussed how the U.S. received Tsai's inauguration speech. Uh, What we left out, though, was the response from China. Uh, So we wanted to, you know, wait a little bit, give everyone a chance to weigh in. Well, weigh in China did, rather vocally, in fact. Uh, Right off the bat, Beijing described the speech as an incomplete test paper, criticizing Tsai for the notable uh, omission of the 92 consensus. Uh, They also warned that cross-strait exchanges could be shut down if Tsai fails to accept that consensus. So that's a big headline there. Uh, Gavin, fill us in. uh, What else stuck out to you this week? We've had veiled threats from Beijing this week, and one of the threats was from China's Taiwan Affairs Office. And on Wednesday this week, an official from Beijing's Taiwan Affairs Office simply said that if the One China Principle cannot be upheld, then political mutual trust will no longer exist. And they also went on to say that this could have an adverse effect on Taiwan's participation in regional economic cooperation. Mm. Obviously a threat there, basically saying if you don't tow our line, you won't be able to join these trade blocks. Which was quite interesting. Of course, the other interesting thing was the rantings of a an analyst from the Chinese military. Right. Well, we're, we're going to save that towards the end. That's the extra juicy bit of criticism, and we're going to save that one for the end. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably already familiar with uh, the sexist little screed that Gavin is referring to right there. Uh, okay, so just, you know, based on what I read, based on what Gavin said right there, that sounds pretty unequivocal, uh, a pretty unequivocally negative reaction from Beijing. However, uh, there are a number of analysts out there uh, that are saying that Beijing could have done even more uh, and that, you know, just relative to the full range of possibilities that we could have seen, you know, this is a relatively muted response from Beijing. Uh, So, uh, you know, we're kind of reduced to reading between the lines, trying to read the tea leaves here. Uh, So I'll throw it to uh, Paris, to you first. Uh, What is your take on all this? Uh, well, I do think uh, China could have done more or said something even more harsh, but this is as harsh as it can get right now. And uh, I also believe that the, the more and the harsher China attacks, it shows how panicked they are. Um, but I also believe that the, this like acting tough is necessary for, an ad for the Chinese Communist Party because it needs to show the people that the party can be tough and to strengthen the nationalism within its country. 
because nationalism is part of the legitimacy of the party's ruling of the country. Mm. But I'm not so concerned because remember uh, a couple of years ago we had the anti-Japan protest a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. also the, with the Senkaku Island with Japan and China have so many protests and cut off communications and dialogues but still China still have a uh, tight economic ties and business with Japan and the business was still growing. You see the tourists traveling back and forth. And so I'm not so concerned about this, especially Tsai Ing-wen, basically in her speech, basically following Ma Ying-jeou's footstep on this issue. Mm. And she just didn't say the words, but, right. uh, yes, but meanings were the, still the same. So I guess uh, and after periods of time, things were quiet down, and the economic tides and businesses would still be exchanging and, uh, between you know, the cross street. Mm. So perhaps a, a lot of these uh, negative criticisms uh, were more for the Chinese audience than for anybody else. That's what I think. Mm. Uh, Ting, do you do you agree with that? That uh, you know, after we get past sort of an initial stage of uh, vitriol and uh, criticism, uh, that Taiwan and China are going to make it to uh, relatively even keel to a place where uh, cross-strait relations can kind of carry on as they have. My opinion is that I mean, what other choice do they have, right? So um, I agree with Paris in the sense that it, it would cost China quite a lot too to. Um, implement economic sanctions or um, escalate military, um, you know, actions, right? So I think both of those can sort of actually play into um, sort of make Taiwan seem like the victim here, right? And, you know, I think um, the bottom line is that, you know, I think China has, uh, you know, China has said very well what their bottom line is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they've always pressed Taiwan to accept um or to at least give off the, well, you know, so at least acquiesce to this idea of the one China um, principle, right? And so I think, um, you know, in this case, China has to respond in some in some way um, to keep its credibility. Um, <clears throat> I think what happens on the, you know, what happens in reality, in terms of the actual exchanges, what people do, um, I I do think that there is not as much room for you know, sort of on. Sort of unprecedented, not unprecedented or sort of surprise provocation from either side. Gavin, you had something to say? Yeah, I mean, all this political bellyaching aside, of course, this is the politicians saying Taiwan has to do this, otherwise we can't do this. But of course, there was a great quote from the head of the Jinghua, the Tsinghua Uni Group. Of course, the Tsinghua Uni Group. It's a it's a wait for testing, an IC company, big company, and it's, it's, it was looking to invest in several Taiwan companies prior to the election. And this week, the chairman of the Jinghua Uni Group came out and said, it doesn't matter who's in charge in Taiwan, the island will always be open for business. So it seems to be a bit of a difference between the politicians and the business leaders in China as to what to do with the new leadership here in Taiwan. Well, yeah, when there's money to be made, you don't want politics to get in the way of that. Um, I, really quickly, before we move to the next topic, uh, Paris, um, I mean, you were kind of talking about there uh, about the particular formulation of the 92 consensus uh, or 
not exactly the consensus, but the wording that Tsai Ing-wen uh, gave during her inauguration speech. Of course, as we discussed last week, uh, the way that she put it is that she recognized, you know, the agreements uh, and she recognized that there were important, uh, you know, developments in cross-strait relations that were achieved in meetings in 92. Uh, I think a lot of us kind of wrote those statements off as not even being close to a recognition of the 92 consensus. Uh, but you were kind of saying there that uh, perhaps that could be acceptable to China uh, as, you know, a middle ground sort of area. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, for uh, people have been saying that the 92 consensus, the word, the wording, it wasn't even in the official agreement. Uh, it was Su Qi later put a name on, on top of it. And uh, so it's more like a mutual understanding and on the memo, uh, what the, the, the cross-strait government at that time in '92 had uh, uh, achieved. So uh, I guess what people need to dial back and just to look at what exactly was talked in 1992. And um, a lot of analysis would actually say that Tsai Ing-wen is uh, honoring what had been achieved and talked uh, for the past 20 years. It doesn't matter what name was it. The agreement is called 92 Consensus, it's called Bob, it's called David Agreement. It doesn't matter. It's, what really matters is, is what she is uh, ready and to honor uh, and what she's going to do with the cross strait. And it seems like she's taking this uh, modest uh, road and the third way, um, if you say, to follow what Ma Ying-jeou had achieved. Mm-hmm. And, but also I would like to chip in here on the international uh, reactions. Uh, what, one, one of the big factors we have to remember is that the, right before um, the inauguration, the U.S. Congress, the House of Representatives that passed the first time um, uh, in, uh, in the text, uh, the six reassurances to Taiwan, and then passed the, uh, the military budget at the, what invite, uh, the Pentagon would invite Taiwan to join military exercise on the Pacific. Mm. Then we see the AIT and the State Department mm-hmm. have very friendly and welcoming statements to Tsai Ing-wen. Right. Also, the election years this year. They even released a little video uh, <laughs> where they uh, so past AIT heads uh, all spoke in Chinese welcoming her. Yes, and they were saying that Tsai Mei Guanxi Zan. They were saying the relationship right now is really good. So you can see that United States is really welcoming Tsai Ing-wen's innovation and her administration. That would send messages to all over the world that mm. they, I mean, United States do believe Tsai Ing-wen will not take risky roads mm-hmm. uh, toward China and will also, co- you know, will work more with the United States, which the United States welcomes it in terms of military and TPP and all other um, culturally, uh, economically trade exchanges. Mm. I think that would send a very positive message to the international community. Definitely a very different tone from uh, how, you know, international leaders were treating the Chen Sui-bian administration. That's right. All right. Well, uh, we're going to move to uh, another cross-strait issue that came up this uh, week and kind of another test case of uh, the Thai administration's approach to cross-strait ties. Uh, That was at the World Health Assembly in Geneva. Uh, which we kind of been talking about for a while, that you know, involving whether or not Taiwan's uh, health minister would get an invitation to the event. Uh, well, that brand spanking new minister of health and welfare, Lin So Yen, did get the invitation, and he actually also uh, got a chance to deliver a five-minute speech. 
Um, but now that speech is getting uh, a little bit of criticism for a few words that he omitted, Gavin. Oh, yes, well, he he stood on the stage, or he stood at the podium, and he basically said, well, the 22 mil- 23 million people rather of Chinese Taipei, mm-hmm. which I guess is nothing wrong with that at all. It's basically the name that they joined under, basically, so there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that at all. But, of course, the other interesting thing about the WHA in Geneva this week was the the brief encounter that mm-hmm. um, Health Minister Lin Zhou Yen had with his Chinese counterpart, Li Bin. And apparently they had this rather brief encounter. Now, it sounds romantic, but it probably wasn't because it took place outside the conference hall. Mm. And apparently the officials shook hands. We don't quite know what they said to each other, but apparently Lin did say afterwards that he is looking forward to working with China and Chinese officials on health-related issues in the future for, you know, he wants more opportunities for cross-strait cooperation on all health issues, healthcare, health issues, you name it. He was pleased to do it. Mm-hmm. He did, however, say when he arrived in Geneva on Monday, Monday, he did say he wasn't going to go out of his way to arrange a meeting with his Chinese counterpart, however. Mm. So whether this, whether this brief encounter was pre-planned or it genuinely was a brief, unplanned encounter, I'm sure we will never know. Right. So cordial, I think, is the, the headline right there, cordial relations. Um, now, getting back to uh, this naming issue, uh, of the, the, the word Taiwan, uh, I believe, didn't come up at all in the five-minute speech, which uh, I think some in Taiwan would see as something of an acquiescence to uh, Chinese demands that, uh, you know, t- uh, Taiwan, the ROC enter there uh, as Chinese Taipei. Others would see it as uh, some amount of pragmatism uh, on the part of Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, Paris, uh, what do you see there? Is, is that another sign of a pragmatic approach from uh, the Thai administration? Um, I would say yes. Um, a lot of people, of course, criticize that Lin Zoyan didn't use Taiwan. Um, this is, well, for me, uh, this is not actually, for, uh, what happened at the uh, WHA is not going to be a single case, and it's going to happen again, and actually happened before when the DPP treat uh, China dif- the same way as the KMT treat China, people didn't revolve as much as they would if Mindjo said the same thing. So my take on this is um, DPP do have an advantage on this uh, issue uh, because people, I mean the Taiwanese people, put more trust on the DPP and they believe whatever they do is based on Taiwan's interests instead mm. of pushing for uh, a unification, uh, reunification with China right. or uh, have something to hide. Um, so I, I am thinking that in future I would expect that the same thing would happen again, but that people would give DPP more patience and trust on this front. Mm. Uh, Ting, do you agree with that? I mean, a, a lot of uh, observers have used kind of the Nixon in China sort of analogy. Like Nixon was the only person who could uh, reach out to China and restabilize relations because he was so far right. Uh, so do you think that Tsai is going to be given more leeway because she is, uh, you know, seen as a little bit more uh, representative of uh, the public will on uh, cross-strait issues? Um, I think I will have to disagree a little bit here. Um, well, so first of all, I am not privy to you know whoever wrote the speech or if there was a decision to you know not use the word Taiwan or you know it's pretty clear that he avoided the word purposefully, right? My understanding um, is that so speech I, was edited a number of times, so it was a very deliberate decision, as, as near as I can tell. Sure, sure, right. And I so I'm not 
privy to whether or not that was a direct, you know, sort of directive from the president herself, um, or whether that was just um, the team that did the speech, you know, sort of self-censoring themselves. But in any case, I feel that um, people voted the KMT out of office precisely because they were very, you know, either wishy-washy or, you know, they were very much with this, let's not rock the boat, let's not um, call South Taiwan, you know, to, but, you know, I think, I think there's, let me put it this way. So, you know, you have, in Taiwan, you have this very special, you know, situation that, frankly, no other, you know, country in the world has, right? So every time there's some sort of international participation or international situation, the Taiwanese people have to take that participation and weigh that against how much they're willing to give up their, mm-hmm. you know, their right to call themselves whatever they, like, whatever they want, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, there's, it, it's pragmatic to, you know, make certain decisions based on how much that participation means to Taiwan or how much benefit that brings to the Taiwanese people. But frankly, I, my take is that the Taiwanese people are just sick and tired of having to do that all the time. Right, because nobody else has to deal with this stuff, right? And so for Taiwanese people, they say, you know, why can't we just call call ourselves Taiwan and just you know be done with it? And I think that sentiment has a lot to do with why the KMT people are out of power. And you know, I think right now there is a little bit of a honeymoon period as to say, you know, let's give Tai a chance. You know, let's see what she does. You know, I feel like if she, if the Tai administration continues. The trend, or continues, you know, sort of in the in the same in the same mold that the administration has approached these situations. I um, I definitely do see a backlash mm. if that were the case. All right. Well, certainly uh, a little bit of tension that we have been following here on the show. Uh, very curious to see. Uh, how the electorate kind of falls on these sorts of issues. Uh, so something to be followed for sure. Uh, but we're going to move to our last topic for uh, the first half of the show, uh, and we're going to have to go through it fast because we are coming up on a break. But uh, as we mentioned uh, a second ago with Gavin, there was quite a lot of criticism of Tsai coming out of China this week. Yeah, this, uh, got, this got a backlash, but this got a backlash in the wrong way, basically. We're exactly. Quite, there just... was uh, one official from the Association for Relations across the Taiwan Strait. Well, he set himself apart. He really distinguished himself. Yeah, one would imagine that he lives in a cave. That's a rather derogatory thing to say, but I really don't From the care. 15th century. His name is Wang Wei-shing. Mm-hmm. Apparently he's an analyst for the Chinese military, and also he's a member of China's Association for Relations Across the Taiwan Straits. So a bit of an official capacity there. Technically, he should have kept shtum, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. Because Mr. Wang decided that, well, he took umbrage against Tsai Ing-wen's singleness. And he basically said, the fact that she's single means she's developed a political style that leads towards emotionalism, individualization, and extremism. This mm. is according to Mr. Wong. And he said, when we, being China, deal with Tsai Ing-wen, we must always consider important factors like her experience, personality, and psychological traits. Mm-hmm. A rather disparaging comment by this Wang Wei-shing, who no doubt lives in a cave, and I will repeat that again and again and again, because <laughs> I really don't don't care what this man thinks. Well, me. maybe maybe we should point. I mean, Gavin, you're you're, you're single. Are you more prone to emotionalism? No, I can see you getting angry I, I right don't, there. I don't have any cats. Oh, okay, maybe Sets this you bloke, apart. May, Maybe this bloke just doesn't like women that have cats. That is possible. Anyway, Mr. Wong's comments. 
Well, they were greeted with much disdain from people on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, with people mm-hmm. calling him basically a troglodyte and various other derogatory Pretty sure that particular word wasn't used, but the sentiment the was sentiment there. The sentiment was there, the basically was a there. sexist pig, I think one could call him. But never mind, I'm sure, I'm sure maybe one of our other people on the show today has a comment about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you, I think you hit upon one of the key points there is that the criticism of those comments wasn't just coming from Taiwanese citizens. It was also coming from Chinese citizens as well. Uh, kind of some of them uh, went so far as to defend Tsai uh, as, as a strong female leader. Uh, but, you know, as Gavin said, uh, this guy, Mr. Wong, he was something of a, a Chinese official in something of an official capacity. Um, he was. Maybe he won't be coming here when ARATs next send their delegation. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that would be a little awkward. Uh, Paris, I mean, what, what, I, I don't quite necessarily have a, a good feel for how uh, all of those officials are, are handled by Beijing. Do you have any sense that he was uh, speaking for the party when he said that? Well, um, for China, it's hard to tell. There are, they have so many publications uh, that related or uh, uh, affiliation with the, the party or with Beijing. And uh, it could be just some rook uh, official and authors trying to, to push forward, trying to please who he ever... Uh, things that he's pleasing and went out of the line of the script. Mm-hmm. But um, what I think is that this kind of action, but it happens a lot, uh, sometimes with even with the United States. Some, 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 sometimes you see the Chinese party's newspapers or publications criticizing Obama, as we remember, like, you know, some, some are very racial slurs and stuff. And uh, uh, or to uh, Gary Locke, uh, as we remember that when he was uh, the uh, ambassador to China, there was some, you know, criticism on the Chinese newspaper regarding that he is ethnically Chinese, but is working for the Americans and blah, blah, blah. So um, I think this kind of actions and the, um, the statement and the backlashes that comes with it, uh, remember I talk about it needs a certain time period for China's harsh words to quiet down and uh, starting to uh, have a more stabilized cross-strait relationship. I think this kind of backlash in the actions might make the tough stand period shorter because China was starting to try to dial back Mm. uh, because facing the criticism from overseas. Mm, Right. Uh, Ting, uh, really quickly before we end out this segment, I mean, do you think that this sort of episode might uh, help Tsai in a way, just in the sense that uh, voters here, folks here will kind of rally behind her? Um, Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, this is already, I think, over um, the meta story, right? The fact that this story is now picked up by, you know, courts, by time, by, you know, all of these mainstream Western media, um, pretty much, you know, ridiculing, making fun of, and just, you know, kind of casting in disbelief that somebody from China actually said this, mm. right? So, you know, that meta story has already been, uh, you know, very popular in Taiwan. And, you know, just, you know, I, I, I guess to me, it, you know, it makes sense, right? Because, you know, if you're single, you must be a bad, you know, bad leader, right? Because, you know, if you have, you know, relationships and mistresses and prostitutes, you know, that makes you a good leader in China. <clears throat> right. Okay, well, we are going to let uh, the segment end on that point. Uh, I think that basically says the whole story right there. Uh, and uh, round out the first half of the show right there. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to say goodbye to Paris Huang uh, because he has to run, has an appointment real soon. Uh, but very happy to have you on the show once again. He is an international broadcaster for Voice of America based in Washington, D.C., also a 
Taiwan watcher sharing his uh, insights with us on the show. Uh, Paris, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Keith. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, when we return, we're going to be talking about reform, reform, reform. There's a bunch to get to, so uh, stay tuned for that when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly review of the top stories from around Taiwan. Keith Menconi joined by Gavin Phipps and Chaiting Ye. No adjustment period. That's the promise coming from Premier Lin Tran. Uh, basically saying there, uh, his cabinet is going to waste no time. They are going straight to work. And this week we got a sense of what's on their to-do list. So we're going to spend the rest of the show uh, going over some of the biggest decisions that came out this week from Premier Lin Tran and the Tsai administration at large. Uh, some of them are minor departures from what the Ma government was bringing us. Some are pretty big. Uh, so got quite a bit to go through. Just going to speed through all of this. First up, Gavin, we get to keep those holidays. Yes, the Ministry of Labour this week, it said it's going to propose an amendment to the Labour Standards Act within one month that will implement a five-day work week across the board. Basically, across well, Taiwan, although Taiwan has basically had a 40-hour work week, a 40-hour mm -hmm. work week or a five-day work week for civil servants since 2001, but the Labour Standards Act has never been amended to cover the private sector. Right, so, so that expands it a little bit. And then the idea there was to compensate, uh, to make sure that Taiwan didn't lose productivity. I guess it was seven holidays were going to be... Yeah, this was the Ma administration before they left power. The Ma administration planned to cancel seven national holidays to make this 40-hour work week, five-day system work. The new government have said, hang on a minute, we're, we're going to make it work anyway without scrapping the holidays. All right. Which is fair enough if you work for a living. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, but, I mean, if, if there really is a productivity issue there, I guess that stays I in. I never understood this productivity issue. Basically, even if you own a company and you want more money for yourself and maybe your employees, maybe on that one, surely you should make your employees happy. The happier the employees, the more work they do anyway. Well, I'm certainly more happy to hear this, so uh, maybe I'll be more productive next year. Who knows? Uh, Ting, I mean, uh, what, what, what do you see here? Is this kind of a nod to uh, labor in Taiwan? I think so. I mean, it's, uh, I think as far as gestures go, um, this is not, in my opinion at least, this is not you know, a humongous change. You know, I, I think in Taiwan, on the, on the, sort of on the, in, in, the, in people's everyday lives, right, you know, everybody says, yeah, of course, you know, the weekend is Saturday and Sunday. I think that's a pretty standard understanding, just, you know, like, commonsensically in Taiwan. Um, of course, you know, amending the law to reflect that, you know, sort of just catches that up, right? You know, of course, mm -hmm. we've already seen um, certain, um, you know, employers or sort of certain corporate representatives kind of saying, oh, this will, you know, reduce the productivity and all this stuff. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that's always going to be their line, right? Mm. Um, so... You know, I this gesture. I think it's. I want to say it's one of those things that's um, that's not that hard to do, and I think will end up not being too controversial. But definitely makes you know doing that right away as you know sort of the first thing to come out of the the, the, uh, the Ministry of Labor. Um, one of the first things to come out of the new administration definitely gives people something to say. Hey, they're actually doing something different. Mm. Um, so I think this is definitely a very good. Uh, move on the time administration part. Sets a tone. Sets a friendly tone for us working exactly. stiffs out there, yeah. All right, well, off we go to another policy shift, uh, this one to be found on the high seas. 
Uh, more specifically, those seas surrounding the Akhenatory Atoll in the East China Sea. Uh, the Tide Administration uh, did take some action on this front this week. Uh, now, this one is actually a, kind of a murkier case. I'm not really clear on how much has actually changed uh, from the KMT stance, but uh, there are critics in the KMT that saying uh, the moves out from Tai uh, show a softening of uh, Taiwan's stance on Japan. But let's, Gavin, remind our listeners, what is this controversy here with the Akhenatory Atoll before we even get to the, what Tsai did or what the criticism has been? Well, the Okonotori Atoll, of course, is located 1,600 kilometers east of Taiwan's southernmost tip at Olumbi. And, of course, it's owned by Japan. Japan has territorial waters there. They want a 200 nautical mile limit around it. Taiwan, or the Mara administration at least, didn't accept this and said, no, you can have a 500 meter security zone around it, and our fishing boats can operate in the area. Now, the Mara administration, before it left power, dispatched two Coast Guard cutters and one Council of Agriculture ship to the area of the sea there. Mm-hmm. The Western Pacific to make to basically make sure that local reg- Taiwan registered fishing ships, fishing boats can go did, about their business. Basically, yeah. Now there was claims this week by certain people that said the Mar- the Mara administration, the Tsai administration was bringing these Coast Guard <laughs> vessels back, basically, mm-hmm. and all the boats were coming back and they were running away from Japan. But the government did deny this and say, no, look, the current Coast Guard operation in the waters around the Okanatori Atoll was only ever meant to last from May the 1st to May the 31st. Obviously, the operations ended. These vessels, they're not nuclear vessels. They're not big ships. They do have to come back to port Mm. regularly, you know. So Uh, they'll have to come back to port on May the 31st when the operation ends. And the government have said that although these ships will be pulled back to port to resupply, if need be, they will be sent back to the Okinatari Atoll waters if Taiwan-registered fishing boats are still operating there to protect them. Right. And uh, I also read this week that Japan is uh, removing their uh, Coast Guard fleet from the area as well. So it seems like a de-escalation. The other move that the Tsai administration made this week uh, was to establish a communications mechanism with Japan over this issue. Yeah, this was the the mechanism on which to base maritime affairs cooperation. Mm. And apparently they're going to be talks will begin at the end of July on this new mechanism. And they're hoping that disputes can be resolved through negotiations and the proposed mechanism is aimed at maintaining an amicable relationship with Japan and ensuring neither side take any action that could increase tensions. That's the same as, of course, always. It's just basically political speak. But this, basically this dialogue mechanism on maritime affairs, apparently it builds on the existing framework of Taiwan's Association of East Asian Relations and Japan's Interchange Association. Hmm. Those two bodies deal with each other in the lack of proper diplomatic ties and they, they they've come to an arrangement over the years about where to fish where not to fish how you can fish but the, the thai administration hopes the new mechanism will build on this and also cover other issues and not, not just fishing but also environmental protection scientific research and also maritime emergency and rescue all right all good stuff right there however uh this brings us to the next criticism uh, from the opposition KMT, uh, that being that the Tsai administration worked out all of this, uh, all of these advancements with Japan uh, sometime before she even came into office, leading to accusations of black box negotiations, similar to, you know, basically turning the tables on the DPP and saying, now they're the ones that are guilty of black box negotiations uh, and not really holding the line on ensuring Taiwan's sovereignty and interests uh, in this area. 
Uh, Ting, I mean, um, is this a theme that you expect to see continue? Uh, you know, obviously the KMT is more suspicious of Japan than the DPP is. Um, is this going to be a, an issue that the KMT runs with? Perhaps, um, but my guess is that no one is really going to take them up on this very seriously. Um, I mean, as we, as everybody knows, the um, you know the, the whole black box negotiation idea, um, you know, a big part of that was tied on because your counterpart is China, right? Not a country known for their transparency and their rule of law and their respect of you know their people's wishes and interests, right? And so, you know, of course, when you have a black box, when you have some sort of negotiation or dealings with the Chinese government that is not transparent, well, you know, it's definitely much more cause for concern. With this issue, um, I with Japan, I feel like, one, this is not something that pertains to people's everyday lives. As um, You know, we're talking about, um, I mean, it is very important for the livelihoods of the fishermen and the fishing industry. Um, you know, for the rest of the country, there. You know, I don't think there's something that they pay much attention to. Mm. Uh, versus the um, services trade agreement. I mean, that covers everybody from funeral homes to, you know, hair parlors. You know, the, you know, and everybody in between, right? And so, I think the KMT is. This is. I kind of feel like they're just trying to, you know, hey, that tactic worked against us. Maybe let's try it against. You know, let's try it ourselves, and just really not understanding why it was. You know, such a big why it was actually you know, such a big deal against them in the first mm. place. Right. So perhaps not going to see a, a whole lot of traction there, uh, which uh, means that we're going to have to drop that issue and move to our next one. We are just speeding through this stuff because we do have a lot to get to. Uh, this is another controversial move by the Thai administration, that being the decision by the executive yuan to drop charges against the sunflower activists who stormed. That very same executive yuan back in 2014. Let's This wasn't the occupation of the legislative UN. This was one, one evening, March the 23rd into the 24th, when protesters that were involved in the occupation of the legislative building in March of 2014, some of them broke off and broke in to the cabinet building, which, if you know Taipei, is basically a two-minute walk away. So they wandered down the road, they saw the building, and they tried to break in. But it was a big escalation. Well, it did escalate things. Um, basically, they got a bit hairy, the police got involved, the police, one could argue, certain, certain people have argued they went in there to crack skulls, the student movement protesters said we were only occupying it peacefully... There lies a big void in who was right on that one. Anyway, 126 people, not all protesters, I will say, were detained after the breaking in to the cabinet building. Mm -hmm. Some of them were reporters, some of them were just people curious, some of them were genuine student protesters. I know who you're referring to in a couple of those cases. The... The government at the time, the Mara administration, said, yeah, we're going to press charges. We're going to press charges against all these people for violating the criminal code for breaking into the cabinet headquarters. They, al- they also broke into the then Premier's office, apparently, and rearranged things in his room. <laughs> so that was obviously something that they frowned upon. Now, the government has turned around this week, the new government, and that's the new Premier, Lin Chuan, and he has said that he believes the student movement was a political event rather than mm-hmm. a simple legal case, and the Ma government's decision to press charges against the protesters who broke into the cabinet building was a political reaction to their actions. So, so something I'm a little unclear on, does this mean that the executive yuan itself was the plaintiff, and that's why they can drop the charges? 
I presume so. The cabinet, the cabinet. If you're in the cabinet, the cabinet is the plaintiff. The plaintiff of the cabinet can drop charges. Basically, I guess that's how it is. Not a very good precedent they're sitting here, though, unfortunately, because they could be opening themselves up to people that don't support the DPP one day breaking into the cabinet building, and then there is the dilemma of do they press charges against them or do they not press charges against them? If you see what I mean. Right. I mean, and that uh, is what a lot of observers are saying is that if, you know, you want to bring about the rule of law, uh, you, you know, want to apply those laws consistently and not, you know, saying that you're going to do it politically gets you pretty far away from that standard. Um, uh, interestingly, though, I think that they also dropped charges uh, or stopped the investigation of uh, police brutality in that instance. So both of those. They haven't. There's questions about that. Mm-hmm. Certain people want the the, pre, the, plea, the alleged police brutality carried on being investigated. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think that's going to be rather difficult for the government to actually take policemen to court for bashing heads when they're letting the people go that broke into a government building. Mm. Uh, so, so, Ting, uh, is this just a, an attempt by the Thai administration to put this episode uh, behind them and, and, and just move on? Yeah, I, you know, I almost want to say this was more of a PR move. Um, I mean, let me, let me not, you know, I, I believe that the, you know, uh, the, the new premier, new government is doing this, you know, with good intentions, and, you know, perhaps they, you know, thought the suit itself, you know, was, was uh, by political, you know, through political, with political intentions, um, mm-hmm. you know, at least, you know, as sort of a, you know, persecution rather than prosecution. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly how a lot of uh, DPP supporters and also supporters of the student movements, you know, saw the lawsuit. Um, I Right, and I mean, and especially was, given the yeah. fact that uh, there was some criticism last week uh, from uh, protesters that were sort of accusing the DPP of appropriating their movement uh, when, you know, the protesters would argue the DPP hasn't always been on their side. Uh, so it would have put the DPP in a very awkward position to continue these prosecutions. Uh, I mean, that would just go further to uh, create the perception that they're not on the same side. Right. And I think, you know, since the the defendants in this case are, you know, the student you know movement participants that have become sort of household names in Taiwan, you know, I think this is, um, you know, and, and I don't think the government actually gains much by, you know, winning this case, right? Um, I mean, there's the sort of precedent effect that Gavin is talking about, but I really don't see, you know, something similar happening, you know, in, in the foreseeable, you know, in the in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, you know, assuming that the government don't, you know, implement policies that are so unpopular that people feel that, you know, the only way out is to occupy, the only way to get the voices heard is to occupy and break into, you know, government buildings. Um, you know, I, I think this is, again, something that um, the government can do relatively easily, you know, comes at very little cost to the government and, you know, does create a lot of goodwill in the society. Like you said, Ting, it does create goodwill, but, of course, not everyone sees it that way. There are certain people here, of course, who are pro-unification, I mean, I'm sure they don't see it as goodwill at all. I mean, I'm sure they see it as stamping on the Republic of China's face, basically, and then rubbing its nose in it. My problem with this whole situation is one day these people, these pro-unification groups, could occupy the cabinet building, could break into the legislature, and the, the Thai government would have to deal with them 
in a way that they criticised the Ma government for dealing with the protesters in 2014. So it, it, they're basically, it's a catch-22 situation. If it happens, I guess it happens. We'll see what happens. If it doesn't happen, there's not even worth talking about. All right. Well, uh, we are moving off into the realm of speculation, but I, 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 I definitely uh, take the point that Gavin is serving up. Uh, definitely does create some tricky situations in the future, potentially. But we're going to move to our final uh, story and our, our, our final act that we're going to take a look at from the new Thai administration. Uh, and this is something that we already kind of knew was coming because she's been pledging to do it uh, during her whole campaign. Uh, but now I think we have a date for it. We're getting a, an apology. Yeah, we've got a date for the apology when President Tsai Ing-wen is going to apologise on behalf of the government to the country's indigenous peoples. And the date for that apology has been set for August the 1st. And apparently this, of course, ties into the presidential office well, the Thai administration before they came into power, saying that the presidential office will establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And part of that, of course, move by the presidential office, it will be looking into matters regarding transitional justice for indigenous peoples here mm-hmm. in Taiwan. And Tsai Ing-wen was quoted this week as saying that she, she plans to apologise to the Aboriginal peoples who have in the past been disadvantaged in terms of economics, education and health. Mm. Of course, this is a big international thing at the moment. Governments apologising to their Aboriginal peoples. Right, similar thing just happened in Australia. In Australia, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, something to look forward to in just a short period of time. Uh, again, uh, Ting, maybe you could give us some sense. I mean, uh, is this something that is high on the electorate's minds? Uh, is this? A, you, I mean, a second ago you were kind of saying the, the, the fisheries... Uh, controversy is uh, an example of something that is not on high on the priority list. Uh, w- w- would you put this one a bit higher? Yeah, I would. I would say so. Um, of course, you know, I, using the previous logic, you would, you know, one would think, well, the indigenous population makes up a very small percentage of Taiwan's overall population, and so this wouldn't be high on people's minds. But I think the um, the, the theme of going back to look at previous historical wrongs, um, I think is still, it, it is on everybody's minds in Taiwan. Mm. Um, you know, and I think, but I think beyond that, it does get a little tricky um, because, you know, again, you know, we talked about this issue before on the show. Um, you know, I don't speak for the indigenous po- the population, but just assuming if I were um, in that co- part of that community, right, I think it's weird to say, well, I will, you know, I think it's weird to announce that you will apologize. It's like, you just hold on. I'm going to say sorry to you sometimes. I'm just letting you know that I will do it, right? That's kind of weird, right? Like, you you either apologize or you don't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I've said before, I think the, the real test is in actual changes in policy and what happens, um, you know, in actual indigenous communities and in the lives of indigenous people, whether their um, situations actually, you know, do improve for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the I actual, you know, that, facts on the ground. Exactly. So, you know, I think, you know, obviously, Apollo, you know, the apology is one official gesture, right, and not saying that people shouldn't do that. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to leave it at that, mm-hmm. and it would be an even bigger mistake to say, well, why have already apologized? What else do you want from me? All right. Well, uh, a whole bunch of things to be looking forward to right there. 
Uh, but that's going to round out our show. I, there were even more things uh, that were kind of pretty big deals that occurred this week uh, that, you know, actions taken by the Tide administration. But that is all that we can fit in one show. Uh, so we are going to leave that whole series of topics right there uh, and move to our final story for the day, which, of course, as always, is our bonus podcast story. Uh, and once again, we're actually bringing uh, a company that we've talked about before on the show. Uh, they released a certain commercial that got them into, uh, you know, the public headlines, public spotlight. They've done it again, Gavin. This is McDonald's again in one of their commercials. Of course, last year, I believe it was last year, was it? Or was it earlier this year? Some La- time ago. Months. I think it was last year. So last year, McDonald's released a commercial here in Taiwan, television commercial, which was obviously available on the interweb. Um, of a gay, gay young man telling his father that he's gay in a McDonald's using a cup of coffee to explain it, sitting in the McDonald's cafe. It's a form it, of self-expression, it that was, McDonald's it was, it was an advert for McDonald's, but it was a social issue put in there in a rather pleasant, sort of non-offensive way. Mm-hmm. When it never got in, and people just didn't find it offensive. I'm sure some religious groups found it offensive, but hey, there you go. Most people <laughs> didn't find it offensive. Mm. Now, the, unfortunately, the latest commercial from McDonald's Lots of people found it offensive, and the type of people that found this offensive are people you really shouldn't offend, because if you get hit by a car or you fall over and you need a surgery... You're they're the ones have, that got your back. They're the ones that are going to have to help you out, basically, because mm-hmm. McDonald's released a commercial this week. It said it said in a hospital, there was a doctor, there was a wife, a woman on a bed, there was the husband of the woman on the bed. He was getting flustered because his wife was in hospital, I believe she was mm-hmm. in labour. Mm-hmm. Getting... The doctor comes into the room, the guy shouts at the doctor, verbally assails, verbally abuses the doctor. You know, that... it's, a, it's a tense situation it's being situa- in a hospital. Basically, Anger is yes. flare, temperature is fine. Sets up, that sets up the scenario, the outburst stops, the man goes away... Comes back, sees the doctor, hands him a cup of McDonald's coffee, like, sorry, I shelled at you. Here's a cup of McDonald's Joe. Well, the medical profession here in Taiwan thought, hang on a minute. That's not going to help. A cup of Joe from McDonald's is certainly not going to make me feel better if someone verbally assails me. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Just give a... No matter what you do, well, you the, give a McDonald's coffee. Well, the Taiwan, the Taiwan Medical Association and te- several other medical associations here didn't see it that way. They basically turned around and in a statement said, hospital staff face instances of verbal abuse regularly. Mm-hmm. And... By trivialising this matter, McDonald's is basically looking down and saying, hey, verbal abuse is not an issue. Now, the Medical Association turned around and said that McDonald's needs to make an official apology saying that violence against medical personnel, be it physical or verbal, should never be tolerated or trivialised. Yeah, well... McDonald's, I don't know if they apologised, maybe they did off the books, maybe they did ring them up and say, hey, look, we're sorry, we didn't mean to offend you. But they did yank the commercial. The, the, the commercial was yanked from all official McDonald's promotional websites. It's still, of course, on the interweb because you can't yank anything from the interweb. Right. But the McDonald's did remove it from all their official websites. So many uses for a McDonald's coffee. You can come out to your dad. You can apologize uh, to somebody who you verbally abused. Only if you don't offend people. <laughs> That's the catch-22. Uh, Ting, uh, did you see the offending commercial? I saw glimpses of it. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't able to catch the whole thing, but I guess a couple of things. One, um, you know, regardless of how this shakes out, I mean, I, the, the McDonald's ad campaign, right, I think it's a series of ads using the coffee as sort of a um, you know, they're, they're trying to tackle these 
conflicts, right? The, the whole theme is, um, you know, let's let's communicate over a cup of coffee, right? And I, I think you know that's commendable, right? You know, trying to to you know tackle some of these things, you know, and and I think I think sooner or later they're going to land, you know, something like this. But I do have to say, um, you know, given the the response from the you know the medical community, I think it definitely touched a really bad nerve. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it seems it, like, you know, and, and you hear these kind of stories where, you know, patients, right, you know, they, they have these unreasonable, you know, demands of doctors to work miracles. You know, it's understandable, right? They're upset, their loved ones are sick or, you know, dying or, you know, it, it's an unfortunate situation, right? But, you know, doctors get protested on, they get, um, you know, you hear these kind of anecdotes about people getting, right. you know, local gangsters to intimidate doctors. You get these, you know, patients that call up their local representatives to put pressure on doctors. And I think, you know, as in, in Taiwan, as doctors and the medical, you know, profession is so overworked already and definitely touched a very bad nerve. Now, here's the question. I mean, okay, so they singled out doctors here. Uh, if the next commercial uh, was about somebody who yells at a lawyer, and then gives the lawyer a cup of coffee, uh, would people be as offended about that? You're a lawyer, Ting. Would you be as offended about that? I feel like lawyers are fair game at this point. Um, no, I mean, no, lawyers don't get offended. We just, you know, serve you, right? <laughs> exactly. We just take you to court, right? So, oh, yeah, you know, I guess that's a good point. I guess that's why they probably didn't do lawyers. I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think law, I mean, lawyers, I mean, we have very thick skins, right? And it's like, sure, that we can <laughs> well, you got all, all those time, lawyer right? jokes. You need it. You need right? to no, have it a thick skin. It doesn't matter, right? If you, you know, law's on our side, pound on the law, right? If law's not on our side, pound on the table, right? So that's, <laughs> that's just how it works. There you go. Yeah, I, 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 I got to say, I, I don't really get uh, this series of commercials at all because, in my experience, uh, McDonald's in Taiwan are some of the most stressful, noisy places on the planet. I don't see anybody patching up old wounds there. Uh, but uh, well, we'll have to see what McDonald's serves up next. Uh, maybe they'll keep this going. Uh, maybe they'll find a better group to talk about to uh, mend fences. But we're going to end our show right there. That is it for today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes and the ICRT blog. Please do leave a comment while you're there. We'd love to hear what you're thinking. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Yeah, good night. And by phone, we've got Che Ting Ye of Katagalan Media. Ting, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And uh, if you're listening out there, hope you are enjoying your two-day weekend. There we go. Courtesy of you. Exactly. Courtesy of the Ministry of Labor right there. Thanks, guys. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Careful, buddy. (laughs) Most people didn't find it offensive.